There is no I in team. I've uh, heard that phrase all throughout my life. I grew up as a coach's kid, played baseball and some other sports young, but baseball then through college, and you'd hear this phrase, there is no I in team, which I get the purpose of there is no I in team. The purpose of it is to ultimately say the team is bigger than you. And the truth goes way beyond sports because the truth of the matter is what we are a part of is always bigger than the part we play. No matter what part you're playing, you're a part of something bigger. So what we're a part of is always bigger than the part we play. But here's the problem with there is no I in team is there is eyes in team. So I coach my boys' uh, baseball teams. I help coach, I should say. I've been smart enough to not be the head coach. So I just kind of spot uh, coach a little bit. But you'll see all the time, a kid hits a really hard ball to the shortstop, and the kid catches it, and he's out, and he comes in and throws his helmet on the ground and starts crying like crazy, and all the eyes, whoom, look right at the I, capital I, that individual. So our coaches will now say, you're either a fountain, you're either giving, or you're a drain, you're sucking, right? But then there's positive too. There's clearly eyes and teams because the whole crowd, when my son goes to bat, they scream Braden or they scream Yale's name. And then they even have cheers that they do in the dugout where they'll cheer somebody's name. So clearly there are eyes, individual in teams, but the reality is, what's bigger than them is the ultimate purpose. Paul knew there were eyes and teams because he actually, right on the back end of this amazing verse, in chapter 2, verse 22, when he's speaking to Gentiles and Jews and the reality of them being one, says, and in him, you two are becoming built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what Jeremy was talking about at communion, is that God is uniting divided peoples together and building a community in which God and his spirit dwell in them. And then Paul says, and I play a part and you play a part. Look at verse three. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of of you Gentiles, in light of you, and for the purpose of you Gentiles, you have purpose, you have meaning, you are a part of the plan of God, and I am in prison because you have a part to play. So Paul then goes on, he says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, real briefly. That's the logic all the time throughout the Bible, is we are given gifts to me for you. We're never blessed in Christ of any kind. Every good and precious gift comes down from the Father of lights, James says. We are never blessed but to be a blessing. So I've been given an administration of God's grace for you. Now, this is something I love about the Bible, is the eyes and the we's all fulfill a bigger purpose, but the eyes and we's matter. If you focus in the Bible and follow three, you always see Jesus. 
The one in whom Paul says in Colossians, spoke the world into existence. Jesus spoke the world into existence and in him right now, everything holds together. At the end of this verse, he makes very clear this verse nine, which is kept hidden in God who created all things. He's the creator of all things. The one who's the creator of all things narrows in and sees a widow in Luke seven who has now not just lost her husband, but now lost her son. He zeroes in on a man by a big water pool waiting to be healed. His eyes zero in on him. When everybody overlooks children, Jesus zeroes in on them. When people despise their enemies, Jesus calls one of them and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul becomes Paul and can say, for this reason, I, Paul. Christ zeroed in on me for the sake of the rest of the world. He zeroed in on me, a Jew, for the sake of those we despise who are Gentiles. So what you're a part of is always bigger than the part you play, but you play a very important part. Paul says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, administration. Now, he says, surely you have heard about it. This either means they had heard about it and he's seeking to reinforce it because he wants them to understand, which you'll see in a minute. Or, this is kind of sarcastic, surely you've heard about it and they go, well, I don't think I've heard about it. So their ears perk up again for the same purpose. He wants them to understand. But he said, I have been given an administration of God's grace. That word administration means it's the same word that's used of like a household code or the management of a household. This reality of a stewardship. Something has been given. Something has happened and something has been given that you're now to steward or to manage. Another word for it is a, an arrangement or like a predetermined schematic design. Now, I have four children. My wife and I have four children. And we know about this administration of a household, management, stewardship, predetermined schematic design just to get four kids out of the house. Right? You get four kids together, 12, 10, 7, and 6, and you get up in the morning, and chances are that day there's points where maybe they're all going to the same place, but there's a lot of points where they're going to all kinds of different places. And so you're developing a predetermined schematic design from everything of what they're going to wear to what they're going to eat where they're going to go, how many cars need to happen to get them there. Is my 12-year-old going to put on deodorant? Are the rest of my kids going to brush their teeth so we don't have to pay thousands of dollars at the dentist? Like there are all these things you do to schematically design a reality, to manage and steward a household. Paul's saying God has given that level of attention through what he's done in his grace and in the gospel, and he's given Paul the responsibility to administrate that which he has done, is doing, and is going to do. So look at verse 3. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. So hear this. He's saying the administration that came from the grace of God was this mystery that was made known to him. 
So immediately he's be going, what do I have to administrate? I have to administrate this mystery. What is the mystery? Now, before we get specifically to what the mystery is, you have to understand that mystery is used multiple ways throughout the book of Ephesians. But the big idea is that that which is divided is being united. So remember in chapter one, if you don't remember it because you didn't know this at all, Chapter 1, verse 10 says that what was purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The purpose is to bring unity to all things. Some things, I've done this to you before, some things, shake your head, no, no, all things. Now, if I said to my wife, Haley, we got to go, get in the car but bring everything. Bring things. What things? All things, right? That's massively overwhelming. All things. I can't bring all things. Here's what's crazy is he says that what's being purposed in Christ is to bring unity to all things, not just in heaven, but earth. Not just on earth, but in heaven. I mean, we're now talking about things we can't even see and the things that we can't see. Now, here's the truth. There's a lot of division in the world. There's a lot to bring unity to, right? Am I right? Like a lot. I mean, you just think about yourself. And you go throughout the day, the number of times you think about the ways in which you aren't living. Here's a word I really like, congruently. Meaning the things you want to be in line with how you act aren't together. There's things I wish I was doing that I'm not doing. There's all kinds of things I am doing that I wish I wasn't doing. There's things I want to look forward to that I don't think are realities. There's all kinds of these things. I'm not fully who I want to be. I'm not even living in unity with myself. Now, if we add to that ultimately in unity with other people, most of what keeps us up at night is these divisive realities in relationship, whether they be work relationships or family relationships or concerns with a child or child's concerns with their parents or on and on and on. Or you may not be able to go to bed at night because you're reading about the division between the United States and North Korea or the United States and Iran or whatever these, you're just like, the world's a mess and divided. And he's saying in Christ, his desire is to bring unity to everything. And then he even says in the heavens, this reality that there's division even in the angelic realm. There's demons that were never meant to be demons. And all of this is because fundamentally all things were created by and for Jesus Christ and are living in division from him. But in Christ, all things begin to be united. Paul's vision of the world is massive. It's heaven and earth, things we can see and things we can't see. But here he's saying that there's a mystery. And I'm just going to tell you, verse 22 tells us the mystery is the church. And verse 10 that we're going to look at next week explicitly says it's the church. He says that this mystery may be known to me by revelation. Now, when you see that term revelation, you got to think that God planned to reveal to this individual In the midst of all of human history, he was going to call this one man and give Paul this revelation. He says, I've already written about this revelation of this mystery. So again, think about the intentional design of this. Intentional design. My sister last night uh, emailed me something. 
There it is. I'm looking for this. She emails me something. She says, I think you'll get a kick out of this. So I look at it, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird. She says, I recently ordered deodorant from this place online. My first thought was like, this is what we've come to? Like, <laughs> we're ordering deodorant online. Like, we now have to order deodorant online? But she ordered deodorant online from this place called Native. So she gets an email back from the company Native. Folks, just a reminder, this is deodorant, okay? This is what it says. Comes in Native. My sister's name's Carrie, K-E-R-R-Y. That's the Irish spelling. Carrie, you rock. It was just another mundane day at our office when suddenly Jackie took a look at the computer and her eyes widened. We did it, she exclaimed. We got an order from Carrie Moyer. <laughs> Laura jumped out of her chair and ran to Jackie's desk. She didn't even read the entire email. She just saw Carrie and started screaming in delight. OMG, Laura shouted. This is real. We have an order from Carrie. The entire office erupted in applause. Party in the USA blared from the speakers. Quote, Jackie's a huge Miley Cyrus fan. As confetti ran down the ceiling and champagne bottles were popped, the entire native team is thrilled that you are a customer. Thank you so much for your support and for giving us a reason to cheer on another champion of health. As soon as we're done exchanging high fives, we'll send you the tracking information so that you can track your package. If you have any questions or concerns, please reach out to us. She got another one when it shipped and it's hysterical, okay? But I'm thinking to myself, think about this. These people are selling deodorant for the Lord's sake, right? And they're sitting down going, how are we gonna separate ourselves? Right? And they begin to think through like, well, maybe we could do this, maybe we could do this. Let's send a totally ridiculous email. Like all we're doing is selling, but there's an amazing design and a pre-plan for what's happening. Do you guys remember in Ephesians 2.10 is there's this really famous passage in Ephesians chapter two, the chapter just before verses eight and nine. If you've been around the church very much at all, you've heard this. And this passage says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is a gift of God. It's not of yourselves, lest no one should boast. Most of us understand or have heard that if we've been around the church. If you haven't been, it's a great passage to sit in. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But the next verse, verse 10, far too many of us don't ever look at. He says, for, God saved us for, remember that? He doesn't bless us but to be a blessing. For we are, we collectively, not you as an individual, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what's good, to do good works, okay? Now listen to this, that word workmanship is the idea, the reason it's workmanship is you think of, when I think of workmanship, I think of a craftsperson, somebody maybe working with wood or an artist. Many people have said, and this is true, the word workmanship is the word poema in the original language, and this idea of like poem, that when you think about how someone designs a poem, there's incredible intentionality, there's amazing design, there is lots of forethought in it. And he says, I'm saving you, and you are God's workmanship, that God had all of the foredesign. He's used these words already in Ephesians chapter one of you were chosen, not by anything in you, but you were chosen. You're being refined, that you were predestined. 
that God in advance began to piece this thing together that now in chapter 2, verse 22, he says, you're being built together, built together as God's workmanship to become a dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Now, what's amazing about this is what he's selecting are things the world would never select. Paul says in another letter that he's choosing the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, that he's entering into challenges. He's entering into the places that people would say, those folks won't even speak together to each other, let alone live together. This is where the challenge begins to come in. Look at verse five. He speaks specifically about this challenge that God entered into. He says, this whole mystery was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Now here's the challenge, verse six. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. If what God is doing is bringing together that which was divided, Jews and Gentiles were hostily divided. They talked about each other. They hardly wanted to look at each other. The cultures were so different. They didn't like the way each other smelled. They didn't like the way each other looked. They didn't like the way they raised their kids. They didn't like their view of the world. And he's now speaking and he says, the mystery through human ingenuity, through human passion, through the schematic design of the brilliant of brilliant, the world's leaders. No, he doesn't. He says through the gospel. Through the gospel, through the design of God and the work of Christ, God himself becoming a child in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, the good news that the king has come to restore broken things. The good news that divided things will be united. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs. Now, folks, I'm pretty certain most of you know what heirs means. It has something to do with inheritance. If you've ever been around a family that is having a dying father or mother and the portfolios on the line, you know what I mean, like the inheritance. It's amazing how brothers and sisters will begin to fight and aunts and uncles will war and rage. People want their share of the inheritance. Now the Jews in Israel was convinced the Messiah is ours. God's called us. Everything wrong within them is they thought they were blessed to be blessed, not blessed to be a blessing. So when he says, Here's the mystery that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. The Gentiles are like, we're getting a share. And the Jews are like, they're getting a share. He's bringing together, he's reconciling divided parties because his purpose in Christ was to bring unity to all things. And this division wasn't gonna stand. His intention was that all of humanity, not just Israel, would be united. In the inheritance of what? Well, what does God own? Come on, folks. What does God own? Everything. Everything. 
This is why when he says live like Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, which is called the Sermon on the Mount, and he speaks about the Beatitudes, living like Christ, following his ways, he said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit what? The earth. That's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. God doesn't have this scarcity mentality. Like there's only so much of the inheritance, I need some of it. He's like, I own it all. Just be grateful for your share because what you're a part of is way bigger than anything you thought. Your mind is minuscule. Your desires are weak. I'm talking about giving the earth, the fullness of the Lord in the midst of the creation that he's made. All of the blessings and benefits are now the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, shares together in the promise of Christ. This is what I love about Christ and God. He's always up for a challenge. Like all the best leaders are, right? Like all the best leaders. They're up for a challenge. We're designing a prayer room in the commons. If you don't know what the commons is, it's just outside this worship space. If you look out, the beautifully designed building is the commons. It's the place where we all come together and have an opportunity to get some drinks and get some food and hang out together. And the space on the east side of that was a big bookstore that we're shrinking down and making into a great small bookstore. And then we're going to take the majority of the rest of that space and make it a prayer room. When we had this desire, we sat with our architect, Jack DeBartolo, and we said, here's the desire. We know this is crazy, but we want prayer to become a part of the warp and the woof, like you were weaving, like right at the center of the life of our church, which means it should be right at the center of our campus. Because we want to be a people of prayer that God has called us to be. Now, we don't want it off in a corner. We want it at the center of where all of the public, if you will, is moving through. Now, this is a challenge, but we believe all of life is all for Jesus. The communion happens, communion with God happens on the road. That we want to be praying in there so that we can be praying without ceasing as we work. Not just as we corporately worship. Or not just in private, but in public. So what if we put it right where the biggest part of our public life as a church happens? That all of the community and public life would move into the sacredness of prayer and the sacredness of prayer would move out and would teach us that all of life's all for Jesus. And what did Jack say? Like every great leader's, I love the challenge. I love that challenge. Leaders love the challenge. In Christ is the leader of leaders, Right? Kings are supposed to be leaders, but he's the king of kings. Lords are leaders, but he's the Lord of lords. He's the leader of leaders, and he takes up the challenge with the intention that in Christ, through his work, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, I'm going to bring unity to everything on heaven and on earth, and I'm going to start in creating a people of all types and all stripes. And he predetermined that. In design, way more of a design than the deodorant company native. Like a poet, he began to move in advance to arrange this in such a way. Paul goes on and he says this in verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people. Now stop. Paul says... At other points in the New Testament, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm just seeking to be obedient to the Lord on the way. And on this way, there was one that preceded him, John the Baptist, who said, I must decrease that he might increase. 
a rightful self-awareness of this isn't the grandeur and greatness of Paul. He's saying, I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people. For God knows I'm not the deserving one. I killed his people and had to be knocked off a horse with Jesus' voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So if you're sitting in this room going, you don't even realize what I've done and what I'm still doing. God knows. God's up for a challenge. He's up for you. No, but I'm really a challenge. He's up for it. You look at the church and we look at the church and we go, we're not all God's calling us to be. We need to be more. He's up for it. But we have to have the self-awareness that pride stands in the way always of what God's doing. And Paul's modeling the humility in which is the means God works through. He then says, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. We could expound this for hours. What are the boundless riches of Christ? Here's all I want you to know is these cravings in your heart to be a united individual, to be united with each other fundamentally comes down to the reality that we were, you were made by and for Jesus. Boundless riches of Christ raises your appetite and as the psalmist says, taste and see that God is good. Paul then says this last verse, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. I want to go back to this so you hear this. Paul's vision for where God is taking all of human history, the lenses are the church. The way in which God is making known to the world that he wins and that he's bringing unity to everything is a calling together of a multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-generational, so multi-generational that it includes all of those who have died and many who are yet to be born. If the Lord tarries, many who are yet to be born. Multi-generational, multi-economic, multi-multi-multi, all types of people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And then he begins to teach us how to live together and he gives us these amazing phrases like forgive each other, just as Christ has forgiven you and you and you. Be imitators of God in kindness, that you want to lead somebody to repentance, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, speak the truth to one another in love. He begins to model for us what it looks like even in the midst of how we as a community are meant to be the light of the world, a city on a hill, is he begins to say things, then you must realize that what you are a part of is way bigger than the part you play. God's reconciling and restoring all of the world that fell under the curse of sin. And he's pronouncing his victory. He's destroying the works of the devil. And he's modeling the reality of the work in the church. That's the administration. The administration that was given to Paul was plant more of these churches, birth them, start them, and then strengthen them through. When they're not living in line with this gospel that's uniting all things, instruct them. Remind them of their calling. And so there's these moments where Paul will say in this letter, you're not living. Live in line with the calling to which you've been called. We're a reconciled people. We're a restored people. We have to realize that what we're a part of is bigger than the part we play, but we play a part and it's indispensable. 
The beauty of this is incredible. And then he's saying, listen, in the midst of this, if you are a restored, reconciled people, we have to start pressing into what this looks like, which means the table becomes central, that we sit at a table with people that are different than us, divided. Think about it in marriage. Many of you walked in today, and in your marriage, you're experiencing division. The only way you get through that is to shut your mouth, sit at a table, and listen. This is why Jesus' words come out through writers of the New Testament who say, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Because two of the greatest instruments of love that we have is our two ears. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. But they have political views that are different than me. But you don't know what they did last night. Shut your mouth and listen. Speak the truth to one another in love. He says, it's not that you won't have the moment, but be quiet and listen. Feel them, hear them. Sit at that very same table, he says. And those who are weeping, weep with them. Those who are rejoicing, rejoice with them. Sit at that very same table and confess your sins to one another that we may be healed. Folks, if we're that kind of community, that does not exist there. That declares not that we've got it all together for we're the least of all of God's people, but we're saying Jesus is true. His words give life. Obedience to his word matters to his glory going out, but it matters to us experiencing the abundant life he came to give. Listen, heed his words for the healing of many, not the least of which is you. Folks, imagine just for a minute if we began to know we were a part of something so massive. If we sat at the table and thought to get at the table to cultivate understanding and we knew that that table had to be girded underneath in kindness and in truth, in compassion and in love, in honesty and in identification with this person. Folks, if we did that, and even at that moment we were confessing our sin, the world would never go those self-righteous, bigoted, non-understanding. They would sit there and go, what is this? And we would say, as he says to us, taste and see that God is good in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for your, your greatness and your glory. God, make us this kind of church. God, we can't become this just by our own resolve. We become this by your spirit. As you told us, it's not by might nor by power, but by the spirit, says the Lord. So God, we ask you for the Holy Spirit as we go. In Christ's name we pray, amen.